0: Good morning, welcome to our life group and uh, talking about parenting. So last week we had left off where we discussed that as parents, a lot of times we fail as parents because we we don't really consider what we're doing. We haven't come up with a plan. You see, with anything, businesses... Uh, churches and, and church is called a vision. Do you have a vision for the direction you're going to go? If a pastor doesn't have a vision, then what are we actually doing? I remember years ago I was speaking with a and he was assistant pastor at a very large church. I think there was easily one to two thousand folks that came to this church, different state, not Connecticut. And uh, this assistant pastor was telling me he was greatly concerned. He said because we just hired our lead pastor, and he seemed like he knew what he was doing. He seemed like it was going to be a great fit. And we had our first meeting, and the pastoral staff, with the, with the church that size, you've got a lead pastor, an assistant pastor, you've got a music pastor, you've got a children's pastor, a youth pastor, an administrative pastor. There's, there's probably like six to eight pastors in there. Plus, I think they had a trustee board and a deacon board. So there's like 20 people in this room. And they looked to this man that they had just hired, and they said, So, what vision do you have for the church? And he looked at them and said, What's a vision? So at that point, the assistant pastor said, we are in trouble. <laughs> so they said, all right, you know what? Take, two, I think he said something, like, take like two weeks, figure out what a vision is, figure out what your vision is, and come back and tell us. I never heard the, the remaining part of the story. I don't know if the guy figured it out or not. I just know at that moment in time when I was speaking with this guy, he was greatly concerned because that, that had not happened yet. He was still in the, in the sabbatical period of figuring out what a vision was. And so a, a church needs to have a vision. The Old Testament says where there is no vision, the people perish. And I know that verse is often used in relation to where we're going, but I want to help you understand something. That word vision in the Old Testament is actually referring to the law, where, where people don't follow the law, where the law is not before them, where the law, where God's direction for them. I, I could see the correlation between following God's law and having a vision. I get it, but that word vision in the Old Testament in the King James Bible isn't necessarily defining exactly what I would say is a vision. A vision is a planned direction. And for Christians, that planned direction should be towards Christ. And the best way to receive a vision is not to feel one out or to to hope uh, for, for great things and then make a vision out of all your hopes and dreams. The best way for a Christian to receive a vision is to go to God and say, God, what is your plan for my life? Because I want that to be my plan for my life. And then I will work towards that plan. A company, secular, would be, they they would call it a business plan, a business model. Without a business plan, what are we doing? Do we have a a direction for where we're going? Do we have a direction for growth? Are we modeling ourselves for growth, or are we actually, the way we're operating, are we hurting ourselves? And the more customers we have, it actually uh, hurts our company, doesn't help us because we're not planning accordingly. For a family, we need a plan. Just like everything else, and everyone else needs a plan for growth, so does a family. The thing is about a company, a company could say, you know what, our business model, we're not, we're not modeled for growth. Uh, there are some contractors, plumbers, electricians, they literally have designed their company of one or two to not grow. They have no desire to. The, the effort and the, the heartache they receive from growth isn't worth the extra money because they recognize when I hire two, three, four employees, yes, I make more money, but I'm paying more money in payroll, in taxes, in, in uh, insurance, so many things. I actually don't make as much money as you might think when our company grows. We've got to get to like 10 employees for me to really grow to a point where I'm sitting back and doing nothing. But then I've got to manage 10 employees who are constantly coming and going. So I've known a lot of guys – uh, manual labor, you might say, that don't want to grow and don't grow. Most companies, most businesses are modeled to growth and they want to. How about the family? You see, I think that sometimes we as parents, we have the mindset of that contractor and we say, I actually don't really want to grow. The heartache of growth and the, the efforts of growth is just worth more than, than the benefits to me. But here's the problem about family. Your family is going to grow whether you like it or not. You can't keep children young. You can't keep teenagers at the age of four years old. They are going to grow. So unlike the contractor, you don't have a choice. Your family is going to grow up and grow out. And if you keep having kids, it's going to grow out another direction. (laughs) And so are you prepared for the inevitable growth that you cannot stop? In my opinion, in my experience, most parents are not. Most parents have that mindset of I don't want to grow, and in my head, I'm gonna keep my 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 oldest son, my oldest daughter, my firstborn, like I'm always gonna see them as three, and they're like 18. You're still looking at them and acting like they're three years old. You're not modeled for growth. You didn't plan for growth. In your head, maybe some families—it's the baby of the family, and the last one is like, "Oh, you're always my little coochie coo." And the kid's like 15 years old now; he's no longer coochie coo, right? He's—he's he's older. You got to deal with them older, treat them older, and plan for him growing even older past 15. How do I? Why do I believe this? Because when I see parents parenting their teenagers, I see them parenting them the same exact way they're parenting children. I see the same rules. I see the same methods. I see the same consequences. I see the same freedoms, none. (laughs) I spoke with a young man, this is some time ago, he was a teenager, and we were talking. I didn't even ask him, it just came up. I think I asked him, hey, are you going to come to this youth activity, Uh, something like that, and he said, no, probably not, my mom controls my life and won't let me do anything. Now look, that's coming from a teenage boy who's a little jaded at that point in his life. I don't know the full truth of that statement, but I get where he's coming from. A lot of parents do just, and this boy was 17. And this 17-year-old boy feeling like he can't even go to a youth activity, I mean, that's pretty extreme, whether it's truly fully or just partially true. We need to understand that our children are growing up. And we need to model our families for growth. And we need to have a plan for successful growth. Because if you keep trying to take your child and stuffing him into that box of, of five years old when they're now 15, they're going to resent you. You're going to hurt them, you're going to traumatize them, and you most definitely will not be prepared for the day where they just blow that box up, break it completely, and say, look, Mom, Dad, the box is gone. I'm not going back in the box. And if you're going to keep, treat, keep treating me like this, then I'm gone as well. And they'll leave before their time. They'll check out. Even before they exit the home, they will check out because they feel like you're not helping them grow. The child feels like a child, and they want to start feeling like a man. She wants to start feeling like a woman, but the parents won't let them grow, definitely won't let them go. Do you have a plan? Your family are, they are going to grow. You can't stop that. It's the way God designed it. Do you have a plan for as they grow up, they also grow stronger? They grow towards success and a plan to help them go out successfully, so that when they go out, they always know they can return. They always know that family is a place that loves them, family is a place that supports them, not enables them, not the same thing. They don't, you're not going to enable their sin, but you support their success. They know that, because as they grew, they saw you adapt. Because that, before we continue on, that is the basic foundation for a family plan of growth. Willing to adapt. I was speaking with someone not long ago, and they were telling me of a particular ministry, a a Christian school, actually. A lot of Christian schools have done really well lately. The public school system uh, has has not been a good fit for a lot of families, the pandemic and the choices through the pandemic, and a lot of Christian families, and even secular. I've had a lot of families that don't even go to church coming and checking out our school. We have another family, touring next week. I don't even think that they go to church anywhere. They are just they're they need something different for their kids. So the Christian schools are being infused with a bunch of kids. This is across the state. This is across the country. I speak with a lot of principals. I speak with a lot of ministry leaders. I was talking with someone who was a part of a Christian school, and they said, yeah, so the Christian school at our church is really growing, and it's really exciting to see. It's like it's doubled in size. I said, well, that's, you know that's great. I'm always happy to hear when Christian schools do well. I said, but here's the catch. Growing kind of just comes naturally, especially after the pandemic uh, with people just looking for places to go. They'll try anything. I said, that's not so hard to grow. You know, it's really hard. I told this person, it's really hard to maintain the growth in a healthy, successful way. A lot of churches. They grow rapidly because God's doing an amazing thing. There's revival in people's hearts. They're looking for answers. And so they'll try any church, and they'll go to this church, and the church sees an infusion and influx because a church closed, a church split, people are seeking something. And, and so they get a bunch of people, and they think, wow, like, we're doing great. This is amazing. We're looking forward to seeing God do amazing things here. My question to you immediately is, hey, praise the Lord that more souls are being uh, exposed to truth at your congregation of believers. Now, what's your plan to keep them healthy to keep them fed to keep them successful well we'll just do what we've always done well that can't work because what you did before was 50 people now you got 200 people you can't always you can't do what you've always done a church needs to operate different you don't change your truth you don't change necessarily the style of what you do but with 200 people i can most definitely tell you one thing you'll probably do differently you'll probably have more bible studies you need to you have more life groups at 200 people than you did at 50. You probably didn't have any life groups at 50. Your life group was your main service. That was your, that was your, that was your Bible study. That was your life group. Now at 200, now at 2,000, you're going to have multiple opportunities, multiple ministries, multiple Bible studies you never had before. Why? You're growing with the people. But a leader who says, no, it worked before. It's going to keep working. We're going to do the same thing. You're going to find that the growth you had will diminish and go back down, because people will say, well, if you're not willing to adapt to the needs of this many people, we'll go somewhere that is. Same with the company. If people walk into a store, and they've got one person at the cash register, and there's a line of 20 people, you're probably not going to that store again. That company is not willing to adapt to the growth of the, of the community, of the neighborhood, saying, we're trying out your store, we like your product, but I'm not waiting for 30 minutes to check out. I don't like your product that much. I'll go somewhere else that's adapting for growth. How about your family? See, a big beef that a lot of kids have with their parents, they don't know this. They're not wise enough, mature enough to understand it. But, but the underlying issue is children aren't seeing the parents adapt to their growth. They have different needs at 12 than they did at 2. Your daughter has different needs at 15 than your son does at 14. You cannot treat them the same. Well, we want to be fair. We want to be equal. That's an explosive philosophy that will destroy your family if you treat your 16-year-old daughter the same way as your 8-year-old son. You cannot do that. Your 18-year-old daughter, your 16-year-old daughter, your 14-year-old son are unique individuals. You need to be just in the consequences for wrong. You need to be wise in what you allow your children, but don't tell your 16-year-old daughter, no, you can't go to your friend's birthday. Why not? Because we don't let your 8-year-old brother go to his, his friend's birthday. Well, the rules for her 8-year-old brother should not apply to her at 16 years old. She's a girl and she's older. You've got to adapt. You will lose your children if you do not. And that's what we're talking about in this section of know your calling, follow the plan. Your calling... I hope you do know, I told you my calling. My calling is very clear, personally, for the glory of God and the souls of men. And I've incorporated that calling into this church. I believe it's a great calling. That is the foundation for what we do, glorify God and reach the lost. When it comes to my family, my calling is to raise my children towards success. Now, that calling could be a Christian's calling, an unbeliever's calling. But for me, as a pastor, as a Christian, raising my children towards success I am trying to achieve in my children the same desire in my own heart of glorifying God. I am trying to achieve in my children the same desire that is in my heart to reach the lost. So when I say raising my children for success, I don't mean so they'll be rich. I don't mean so that they'll be happy. Happiness, continual happiness is unattainable. You can't have that this side of heaven. Success for me is my kids knowing God, loving God, following God, serving God. That's success in my heart and in my life, and I need to raise my children towards that, which means I adapt to their needs as they get older, but always, always towards the plan of, will this major choice, will this moderate choice push them closer to God, or will it pull them further away? So we talked about last week, we are teachers We mentioned in Deuteronomy how uh, the Old Testament Jews were commanded to daily train their children, daily teach them in the morning, in the evening, as they're walking throughout the day. I had mentioned last week that parents, you are the teachers of your children. If you send your child to a school, then you are partnering with that school to assist you in accomplishing your calling to teach your children. And make sure your school, whatever it is, public or private, is doing it well, doing it successfully, and that you are part of that education. Otherwise, they've replaced you rather than support you, and you are the teacher before anyone else is the teacher of your children. Number two, we are the disciplinarians. No one else has the responsibility uh, that you have to discipline your children. Will teachers correct your children? Yes. Will adults in our church, if your child is running up and down the hallway, screaming upstairs, will they say, hey, you need to sit down? Yes, of course they'll do that. There will be some correction, but correction on a minor level from an adult who is not the parent of your child should never be the same as discipline from the parent. I don't have the authority. I don't want the authority. I would never take the authority to discipline your child as you would discipline your child. I'm not their parent. It's not healthy, it's not wise, and honestly, I don't even know that it's legal (laughs) for me to discipline your child in the way that you would discipline your child. You are the disciplinarian. You cannot expect me to do that job. It's not my job. I don't have the authority for that job. And honestly, I don't have the connection for that job. Because discipline without connection will only result in rebellion. Why is it that so many kids rebel against their father or their mother and the parents really did their best the parents tried to have, to have rules in the house that were not overbearing, tried to have consequences that were not extreme, and it seemed like any consequence at all, even, like, even the consequence of, hey, you know what, give me your phone for the night, like that just blew up in, the, in their face. The house was chaos that night because you took the phone for one night. The consequence of uh, go standing against the wall for two minutes, the kid's banging his head against the wall and kicking the wall, I mean, it's, it's even minor consequences just seem to cause major issues. Well, you need to make sure that there's not underlying trauma in your child's life, underlying uh, hurt, bitterness in your child's life, that any, any correction just brings out that hurt. But if that's not the case, I can tell you what is most often the problem. Hey, guys, I can, we can hear you pretty loud. I can tell you what is most often the problem. The problem is children who don't feel loved by their parents who do not have a strong connection with their parents will only feel more rebellious, more prone to rebellion, more pushed towards rebellion when they are corrected by someone who they don't think loves them. Has your child ever been in a classroom under a teacher and the child did not think that teacher loved them? Now, I would hope that's wrong. I would hope the teacher loves your child. I would hope you know the teacher loves your child. But that's not really the point. If your child doesn't believe the teacher loves them, then every correction that teacher gives, minor, moderate, major, is just another slap on the face, you might say, metaphorically to that child. And pain added upon pain added upon pain to that child because they think that teacher doesn't love me and they're just out to get me. If you know that your child is under any authority, teacher, um, principal, youth pastor, children's pastor, worker upstairs in our children's group, and you know that your child feels unloved by them, I'm not telling you to pull your child out. Because what are you going to do? Just keep moving your child to every you know, different church and move the family everywhere? I mean, that, that may have to happen. You may have to do that. Before I would do that, I would sit down with the teacher or the adult that's over my child and be straight up with them and, and be upfront. and say, look, my child doesn't believe you love them. My child doesn't believe you like them. If it's true, you need to state my child actually thinks you hate them. Now, I can tell you what's going to be the response. The adult's going to say, no, 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 that's not true. I do love them. I care about them. They're they're going to respond that way unless they're just horrible people. If they say, well, it's true, I hate your child, then you need to pull them out at that point and find somewhere else and move the whole family if that's the case, all right, if that's the response. Very likely they're going to say, no, no, I love your child. Then you need to look them in the eyes and say, then let's figure out a way right now where my child feels loved by you. Because you saying it isn't enough for my child. Can I give you some ideas? Can I give you some thoughts? And you can help my child feel it. My child has to feel it. They're a child. You're telling them, isn't going to fix this problem. Look them in the eyes and say, what are your thoughts? What can you do? What will you do for my child so my child will feel love for you? They may give you some ideas. You, You affirm the ideas that work. You know your child well. If they don't work, say, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. You'll push them away further. Give the adult direction and then see if they mean it and see if they adjust. And if they do, I guarantee you, in time, that teacher, that adult, that person of authority will be able to correct your child and not push your child to rebellion. That is, that is the response. That's, that's the win right there, guys. But now let's talk about the home. Because some of you grew up in a home with a dad that you knew, you knew that he loved you. You did not feel that he loved you. And when you don't feel loved by your dad, the knowledge is not enough. Enough. And so when your dad corrected you, you got literally scared. It wasn't a healthy respect. It was an unhealthy fear that your dad would actually hit you, hurt you, scream at you, traumatize you. That is not how a child should be raised. So if a child is feeling unloved by their dad, any correction of that dad, even good correction, correction that other men and women would say, yes, that needs to be done, your child needs to be corrected, like, we, like if you needed it, you know, we affirm your correction, dad. You're doing a good job. That child is not going to respond well. Because the child does not feel loved. Same with the mom. If the mom is too busy, if the mom has more children in the home than most, you know, more than two, and she's just spreading herself thin throughout the children, she loves them equally, she's doing her best. But between her job, between her husband, between her children, more than, you know, multiple children, and everything else that needs to be done, it's just hard for her to connect with her children. You know, in my experience, I'm going to clarify experience, because I can't say this is truth, in my experience, moms don't need to connect with sons on the same level. Sons, the way God designed the hearts of a son towards their mother is just a unique relationship. And, and in my experience, sons, they give their moms a lot of passes. Like, I know you're busy mom. I know you love me. And the son usually understands more. For whatever reason, the way that God designed our hearts and our brains as, as young boys towards our moms, we kind of have a compassion towards our moms, just a natural one. Like you got you to really mess that up for a son to not see that, yeah, mom, I get it. I know you love me. It's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Not so much the case with your daughters. Not always. Again, it's experience only. But in my experience, daughters don't seem to give their moms the pass nearly as often as sons seem to give their moms. And so, moms, you're going to find that your lack of connection isn't going to be so easy with your daughters, in my opinion, as it is with your sons. In my opinion, moms, you could treat the son and the daughter the same, and you're going to feel completely connected with the son, and the daughter's like, I don't even know her. I don't know if she knows me. You're going to have to adapt, because a good business plan adapts. Why did so many companies fold during the pandemic? Well, I mean, the government's mandates didn't help, right? But some companies came out stronger and better. Why? Because they adapted. Why did some churches close and they still haven't opened it back up? They didn't adapt because of fear, because of indecisiveness, whatever reason. They did not adapt, and they're not doing well. The churches, the schools, private schools, the companies, non-government companies that have thrived are the ones adapt it. So mom, if what I'm telling you is true for your family and you're not feeling the connection with your daughter like you do with your son, adapt. Stop treating your daughter like your son. Make a more effort, make a bigger effort, more concerted effort to connect with your daughter and recognize she's not two anymore, unless she is two, right? Recognize she's not young anymore and grow with your daughter and let your daughter grow with you. Have conversations you never had before. Take her places you never took her before. Buy her things you never bought her before. Encourage her in ways you never encouraged her before. Give her opportunities you never gave her before. Watch her grow. So parents are the disciplinarians. And if you are disciplining your child and it's not working, then I can tell you most likely your problem is one with the lack of connection. If you're disciplining your child and they're becoming more rebellious, connect with them deeper. Because here is the issue. Even if that's not the real problem, connecting with them deeper will show you what the real problem is. So it's a (laughs) win-win. If the problem, they're being pushed towards rebellion through your discipline is you're not connecting with them, connecting with them fixes the problem. If the problem is some trauma outside your home, some bitterness outside your family, connecting with them deeper will allow them to open up to you, find out that problem, fix it, and then the family goes in a healthier way. So connection is the right answer no matter what the issue is. Connect with them deeper before you continue disciplining and seeing them hurt. The third thing we talked about is parents are providers. We looked at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, where it stated that uh, those who don't care for their families are worse than an infidel. I told you in that context, it was related not so much from a parent to a child as it was from a parent to their elderly parents. That was the connection there, that um, it is the responsibility of adults to care for their aging parents, not the church, not the community. The Apostle Paul did state, I'm sorry, not Paul, I think it was Peter. Um, the Apostle... Uh, Nope, it was Paul. All right, the Apostle Paul did state that uh, if there's an aging widow in your church and there is no one taking care of her and she's a godly woman, then the church's responsibility is to care for her, not let her starve to death. But he stated it is the first responsibility of the family before the church to care for aging parents. So that text is adults to aging parents, but the, the, the principle is the same. We are charged with the task of providing for our family. Whether it is our aging parents who can no longer care for themselves or our underage children who cannot care for themselves. Either one, do your job. Provide for them. The danger is over-providing for them, and then you end up spoiling your child, right? You know how that looks. You don't have to have actually done it to know how it looks. Open your eyes, look around at other families, get a glimpse of other kids who are over-provided for, and you will find how easy it is for children to be spoiled. I knew a family, years and years ago, don't go to our church, don't even live in Connecticut. Uh, I knew them from a long time ago. They had a young son. This family was blessed. By the way, this family would pass on the blessing. This is the kind of family that when they took me out, this is when I was young, my wife and I were newly married, they would pay for our meal. Like, we would go to places and say, hey, let's go to a steakhouse. And I'm wondering, like, I can't afford a steakhouse. Like, we'll buy salad. (laughs) You know, because we were young. I had no money. I was broke. They would take us and buy us. They would buy our whole meal, and I would say, hey, you don't have to do that. And he'd say, I want to. And I say, I feel bad. And his, his response, the husband's response was, don't steal a blessing from me. God has blessed me, and I want to bless you in return. Let me do this. So I came to accept that. And they would, they would take us out probably about once every six to eight weeks. They would take my wife and I out to eat on a regular basis. It was really nice. Family was great. They, they did a lot with their money for good to the church, to the community. But inevitably, they had a lot of money. They just had both of them had really good jobs where one of them on their own with their job could have supported their family. They had two jobs like that. So there was lots of income. Their kids grew up in a family that had lots of income. And so the kids grew up only going to the best restaurants because the parents' taste was refined. I don't, I don't blame them if I had that money. My taste would probably be refined as well. The problem was every time they went, their children also ate off of the adult menu, which is like the top quality of everything. The children got to a point where they wouldn't eat anything unless it was high-quality food. They didn't eat chicken nuggets. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm just stating the fact. They would not. I remember I was the youth pastor at the time. And as the boy became into my youth group, I got a little concerned because we do things the the kid wouldn't do. We would eat things the kid wouldn't eat. And I went to the parents and said, hey, are you concerned at all that you're setting your children, your your son specifically up for failure? And they said, what do you mean? How so? And I said, because they're friends of mine. I can talk to them like this. I said, well, let me explain. Your child right now is living off of your income. What happens when your child is 19? Your child will have his own income. Your child will not be, afford, be able to afford the lifestyle that you are training your child to enjoy. You're, you have not trained your child on the other side that he inevitably will have to live with for some part of his life if ever he gets to where you are at financially. And they thought about it, nothing changed. And guess what happened? Exactly what I said. The boy got older, the boy's tastes were very refined and it was very hard for him to adapt to reality that at 19, I'm now like broke I have no money, and I can't go out to eat because I'm not going to go to McDonald's, and I can't afford the place I want to go. And so this child, it, it, it affected the child. The parents were not planning ahead. The parents did not have a plan for their child. They were just enjoying life, which I get. But their enjoyment of life did not include a plan for their child's future success. Indirectly, they had spoiled their child. So you are providers. Do not Overprovide, And then the last two that we're going to look at today, know your calling, follow the plan. We are protectors. So Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Obviously, we are protectors in the sense that we protect our children from physical harm, physical pain. That any parent understands that. That is the basic, you might say, innate uh, desire and understanding of every new parent To protect their child. That's why you see when moms are holding their baby, they're holding them like this. And when someone else holds the baby, they kind of, uh, you know, hold them right, right? You know, watch their neck, watch their head. A young mom, a a young mom never had a baby, first time having a child innately, instinctively knows my job is to protect this baby from like all harm, right? All people who would dare cough in my baby's face or or drop my baby or hold my baby incorrectly where their head goes to the side uh, unnaturally and it's not supposed to. Like they are uber protective of their children. I remember uh, one time, well, I mean more than once, I've known many moms where they'd have a baby, and at church we wouldn't see them for three or four months. That is their right. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not not speaking against that. I'm not speaking ill of them. I'm just saying their instinct to protect their child was so strong that they felt like, I'm just going to watch the service from home for three months, four months, sometimes more, before the baby's old enough to be able to be around people. Look, you answer to God for that, not me, and if that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. Uh, I get that. My wife and I had our first child, and we're like, praise the Lord, we can go back to church now. Because during her pregnancy, she was nauseous and sick. She was missing church because she was, you know, nine months pregnant when she had the baby. Two weeks after the baby, we're bringing the child, and people are all like, oh, she's so cute, Abby. She's so cute. We're like, great, you want to hold her? Here you go. Take the baby. This baby, we're on this baby all the time. You're welcome to the baby. Bring her back in 15 minutes. You know where to find us, right? And so people are handing our baby around church uh, when, when our baby's just like two weeks old. And we we would go an hour. We wouldn't see our baby. But we knew that it's church. People were taking care of our baby. And we trusted them. And Abby turned out okay. She only has a slight twitch going like this. No, Abby turned out fine. I'll tell you what, though. Actually, because of that, my my babies, uh, all of them, we did that with all of them, they adapted really well into nursery, adapted really well into preschool around people, their personalities are different. Some are introverts, some are extroverts, some are shy, some are bold. But as far as being around people, did not cause them high anxiety because from the time they were infants, like everyone in church had a chance to hold them. So different philosophies, different styles. I, get, I do get the idea of protecting your child. What I want you to understand is your child is more harmed by ideas than they are actions. I'm not saying actions don't hurt your child. I'm not saying someone can't abuse your child Another child couldn't push your child over. Your, your other child, your, the child's sibling doesn't throw a child at your child's head and hurt them. I get that these things are issues. And as parents, it's your job to, you know, put uh, padding on the sharp corner of your table and to, to move furniture around when they're young until they're old enough to handle the, the, the furniture you've got. I get all of that. But we are so focused on the physical safety of our children that we forget how dangerous ideas are to our children. I read the news. I used to every day. I don't do it anymore every day. Most days I do. I've tried to limit the amount of news I read. It just kind of bothers me. But I do still keep in tune with the news. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was reading. I, I read it. I don't watch it. Watching it completely drives me crazy. I can't handle sitting there watching people uh, say what they say. So when I read, I can skim. I can skip parts that just, you know, I know, like, that's a lie. That's not true. Whatever. I can, I can read the parts I want. I was reading about an interview that a man had. With um, a newscaster, and this man was advocating for what is taught in public schools, specifically the LGBTQ lifestyle being taught in public schools. Um, And I think even more specifically, transgender is becoming a big deal where kids are allowed to choose their own pronouns, that they are allowed to uh, basically bring clothes and change the school. And the issue is, I think a lot of issues, but the ones right now parents are concerned with is they don't know. I have a lot more issues than that, but these parents at public schools are saying, we at least want to know. We want to know what pronoun our child is using. We want to know what name they're using. And the public schools are saying, you don't have a right to know that. So a few weeks ago, there was a person advocating for the children, not the parents, saying, like, what's the problem with these parents? Like, what is, why, what is wrong with them? You know, the child is their own person. They can choose their own thing. And this person made this statement. I don't know what schooling this person had to say this. It was a man. He's probably in his mid-30s, early 40s maybe. He said, "Ideas never hurt anyone." I know. I'm thinking, what plan are you living on? Have you not read history? Ideas don't hurt people. Obviously, me thinking something, uh, you know, doesn't hurt you. But ideas inevitably turn to action, and action hurts people. Action begins with ideas. This guy is being dishonest, he's being ignorant, he's being a fool, and he's stating it publicly for all to hear. The problem is the newscaster and others shake their heads and say, he is so right, he is so wise. Ideas never hurt anyone. So if these children want to have their ideas, and if the schools want to teach ideas, what harm are they doing to the children? The real issue for me is not this guy believes it, is that I think that so many others agree with him, that ideas never hurt anyone. And so that's the underlying philosophy for the world, that we're bigots, we're hateful, Because we have such an issue with their ideas. They say, are we touching your children? Are we hurting your children? Are we kicking your children? What's your problem? And we say, no, you're putting ideas in their heads. And they're saying, ideas never hurt anyone. Ideas aren't going to hurt your child. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Ideas are the essence for what we believe. The essence for what we become. The essence, the beginning of what we accomplish and do and don't do. It all started with ideas. Ideas. And that the ideas are gonna be the direction that child goes. So when I say protect your child, we are protectors. That's why I turn to Proverbs 22, 6. That actually is not a verse relating to, you know, move the furniture around so your child doesn't get hurt or take the toy from the other child uh, because they throw it at the younger one. You know, it, it blows my mind. My grandparents, my parents, my wife's parents, my child's grandparents, buy toys for my children. I'm thinking, were you not a parent? Why would you give this to a child? Like this is dangerous. No, we're not going to give my child this toy that they will stab their sibling with. Like, where were you the last 20 years when your kids were growing up? I think I think grandparents just want to forget all of the rules of life. When they get older, they think that, you know, throw it all out. I don't need it anymore. I'm just going you know, to laissez-faire, do what I want, live how I want, like, live on the edge, you know. I don't know, grandparents, what you guys are thinking. So I, I, am throwing, I throw away more toys that my, grand, that my parents and Amy's parents give than anything else. I just chuck them. Like, my kids are asleep, and they'll be gone, and I hope they'll never ask about them again. They're, like, exit the room, exit the house. And so I understand. you got to protect your children, sometimes from the grandparents. you got to protect your children. I get that. But we need to protect our children from ideas, which do most definitely hurt ideas. My children do not have social media. Will they have it someday? Sure, because you know what? My plan is to prepare my child. So when my child becomes an adult, they will have social media at that point. Whatever version of social media is out there at 1920, they most definitely will get on it. And I will prepare them for that, but not at 12 and 13. Because that is a very vicious time of life for a young girl, <laughs> 12 and 13. You remember, ladies, how vicious 12 and 13 year old girls are? Why would I train them during one of the most vicious times of a young girl's life, 12 and 13? Social media, where parents are not on there, oh, don't say that, don't do this. It's like, it's like, um, the, there's a, a movie, I have never seen it, but I know of this movie where a bunch of young boys, Boy Scouts, get trapped on an island, and uh, all the adults die on the plane crash, and these boys are on their own, and they break up into two camps, and one camp tries to do well, and the other one is just vicious, and they just keep attacking them. And the movie, and it's based off of a book, is, is really uh, giving you the idea of, of the humanity of young children when, when left unchecked. <laughs> Social media is completely unchecked. Why would you let the humanity of young children at that this is age of 12, 13, 14, unchecked put ideas in your daughter's head? And you wonder why your daughter looks in the mirror and says, I'm not pretty? I'll tell you why, because someone on social media told her that she wasn't. You wonder why your daughter says, we can't buy these shoes anymore, mom, they're ugly. You want, you want to know why? Because someone on social media told her that. You say, well, if they didn't tell her on social media, they'd tell her in person. I don't know what kind of authorities in your child's life and what kind of boundaries you set. My child isn't just allowed to randomly walk the town into malls and in places and talk with strangers who will, who will tell her what they think about how she looks or who she is. My child is with us or she's with people I trust. When she's at school, yes, teenagers do talk, but there are plenty of adults around. And if a teenager says something that's harassment we, as adults, deal with it. No one's going to deal with it on social media. Your daughter, 12-year-old daughter, is left to deal with it on her own. And girls are vicious, so no, I'm not going to train my daughter at 12 and 13. I'll train her when she's 15, 16, maybe 17. I'll say, "All right, hey, you're about to move out. Two more years out of the house. Let's start. Let's get you these things that you're going to have inevitably, and let's start working through the next one to two years of how it's going to look, how it can look for you to find success, but not at 12 and 13." I told my girls, "You're not getting a cell phone until you go to college." I tell them that because I don't want them asking me over and over again. The truth is, I probably will, you know, a year, a year and a half before they go to college, I'll get them a cell phone for the same reason. I want to adapt and show them how to use that phone, but not at 12, not for me. I'm not telling you, you guys you're wrong if you get it. I'm not saying you're wicked or evil. I'm just saying, you need to understand something. Your kid's not the only one using that phone, and you're not the only one with access to your child on that phone. Protect your child. Ideas hurt. I can't tell you how many times I've had parents in my office with concerns and issues because of the ideas being passed back and forth on social media and text, group texts, with their children. You say, well, I trust my child. That's not the point. You trust all the other millions of men and women who all have access to your child through social media, through YouTube, through TikTok. You say millions, Russ, that's kind of a high number. Not if your child's watching a TikTok video every 30 seconds, every two hours, every day. No, the millions is going to get there eventually. They're being influenced by people you'll never know, never met, and would be, a, be appalled if you saw some of the 30-second videos your 12-year-old is potentially watching. You'd be appalled if you knew some of the group texts that were being sent around by students uh, 12 and 13, 14, and even 15. They start to mature around 16, 17, if they've been parented right. They will start to mature. And honestly, I could see myself trusting my 16, 17-year-old daughter with the phone at that age, not at 12 and 13. Because at 16 and 17, I start to trust her friends a little (laughs) I don't trust her 12- and 13-year-old friends right now. And I love my daughter's friends. They're great girls. I love them. I'm glad that my daughter has them. They're just young. I don't, I don't trust their maturity. And so, no, my child will not have a phone because I believe in protecting my children. From themselves? Yes. From their friends? Yes. From ideas? Yes. Ideas they're not ready to process yet. Will my children have to process these someday? Yes. Is their 12-year-old brain ready to? No. The 12-year-old brain is not ready to process these ideas. And if you don't think pedophiles are not on TikTok, you're fooling yourself. And if you don't think groomers don't flock to TikTok and YouTube and social media, you're, you're very unwise. That is where they go. People who are grooming your child with ideas, telling them your parents are the bigots because they're scared of ideas. Don't be scared of ideas. Let me put one in your head, they'll say. Obviously not directly, indirectly. You fail parent. You didn't protect your child, parent. And then you wonder where all these ideas come from. What do You You can't have your cake and eat it too. Either open up the world's ideas to your child and don't protect them, or you do protect your child from ideas and wait till they're old enough to process those ideas. You cannot treat your child like they're three for the rest of their life, but you should not treat a 12-year-old like they're 17. Their brains aren't ready to handle those ideas. Protect your child. And then finally, we're preparers. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. I told you, my plan for my children is to raise them towards success. And my personal definition of success is that they love God, follow God, serve God, know God deeply. Okay, serve God means I don't get to choose how that looks. God chooses how that looks. They're not serving me. They're serving God. I'm training them to serve God. I'm training them to follow God, not me. I'm not God, and I cannot do for them what God can do for them. They are under me for a time. I need them to follow God. God will take my children much further in a much better place than I ever could. But me saying that doesn't make it true. Me saying that I'm training my children to serve and follow God doesn't make it true if I'm not actually showing them how that looks. And if I'm not letting them go, little by little. Some parents let their 15 year olds go, hey, you're 15, get your permit, you're free, kid. Basically, I'll feed you for three years, I'll get you where you need to go, but you know, you go what you want, you do what you want, because when I was 15, when your grandparents are 15, you know, like they did these things and those things, so you know, you're free. Is your child ready to be free at 15? If they are, then have at it. Most are not, not in my experience. And so we, some people go overboard and they basically let their children go too early and some are still grasping at their children at 22. The child's in college but only three miles away from home and still sleeps at home at night. I'm not saying if that's a financial decision, then that's wrong. I'm not saying it's bad for the child to stay in state and go to college. That is not my point. My point is, why? Why are you doing that? Well, because... I need to keep my child near me. Why? For the sake of my child. Really, is that really the reason? Because if it is, then you got some more training to do. So if you're going to keep the child nearby for their sake, because they're not ready, then don't waste whatever years God gives you. you got four more years in college to keep training them. Take those four more years and keep training them. Because then you're going to be at the same place at 22 as you were at 18. And then what are you going to do? And me, I was ready to leave at 17. I left my house at 17, went to college. I was completely prepared. And I've been happy ever since. I could see some kids not being ready at 17. I could see some needing to stay home an extra year. I could see some kids saying, dad, I'm just not ready to to leave the state and you and mom. Then you need to recognize right away, wow, my 18-year-old son's not ready to leave. Okay. It's not that I failed him. Maybe your child's different. Maybe your child's personality is hindering them. Well, then you need to work extra hard so that at 22, they don't say again, mom and dad, I'm not ready to leave. I mean, kid, you're 22. All right. You're going to get married? Yeah. Well, then you got to get married and provide for your family because I certainly am not taking care of your family, your wife, and your children. That's not my job. I'm going to buy them dangerous toys. All right, I'm not going to take care of your family. So prepare your child. And if for the sake of your child they need four more years at home, nearby, fair enough, I'm not saying anything against that. You're the parent. Do what's best for them. But for most parents, I don't believe that's the case. For most parents, I think they're keeping their children home, not for the sake of their kid, but for their sake. They can't let them go. I can't let you go yet, son. It'll break your mom's heart. You wouldn't want to break her mom's heart, would you? Now you are guilting them into staying because you and your spouse aren't ready to adapt again. You say, Russ, I'm sick of adapting. I get it. Parenting is adapting after adapting. That is all you will do. And then when your kids move out, you'll adapt once again because now it's just you and your spouse, and that takes a lot of adapting. (laughs) You think that's easy? Try it. It's fun. I'm looking forward to it, but it is gonna take some adapting. My wife maybe not looking so much forward to it. I personally am. I love my kids, but I'll love them when they're away too. So, and then your kids have grand you have your grandkids and you're adapting once again. Life, once you start having kids, you will adapt till you're dead. So just accept that now. Because if you don't adapt, it will be your children and your grandchildren who will suffer. You must change. You must be willing to grow with them so they can grow out from your home. God's design for your child was to leave your house. Ephesians 5.31. That's God's rule. That's God's law. That's God's intent. You want to know the will of God for your child? The will of God for your child is to eventually leave your home. That's his will. Are you training your child for that will? And are you training yourself to accept that will before it happens so it doesn't smack you upside the face and hit you so hard you're not ready for it. From the moment m- all five of my children were babies, I knew, holding them in my arms, I already planned in my head, I already accepted the fact, my job is to get this baby to a successful adult, and I've got 18 years to do it. And if I need four more, and I could see, of my five children, I could see at least one. That night might need that extra four years. I could see that. I could see my, one of my children being close to home, not because I need them to. They need, they need to. Well, I'm going to have 20 years, 22 with that child. But at 20, 22, I've got to get them where they're successfully on their own. I cannot keep them forever. I don't want to. Most three to four of my children, I can see 18. I've got to be ready to send them off at 18 because they're going to be chomping at the bits to go at 18. Will I be ready for that? I am. I say I am. You can check with me in five years and see if that's still the case. But that's my plan. I have a plan. Do you have a plan? Are you working towards a plan? And then, what is your plan? Does it include God? Or is your plan your happiness? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these parents in this room and these grandparents. I pray that we would actively work towards the success of our children and grandchildren, deciding biblically what that looks like, how we can help them, how we can prepare them, that our children may find spiritual, emotional, and physical success in their lives because of what we could do for them while they lived under our roof. In Jesus' name, amen.